Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Amy Sedaris has made a career playing people who, how do I say this without coming off mean, people who are kind of grotesque and weird. There's Jerry Blank from Strangers with Candy, a middle-aged high school student with an enormous overbite, very weird highlights, and some really intense mom genes. Or Mimi Canassis, the crazed socialite on Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. But have you seen Amy Sedaris's latest show? It's called At Home with Amy Sedaris. It's kind of a funhouse mirror version of a home cooking and crafting show. And for the first time, Amy Sedaris plays Amy Sedaris in most of the show, which is definitely not Amy Sedaris's comfort zone. Because I have more fun playing characters, and I like playing ugly characters. My favorite episode, one of my favorite episodes, is Entertaining for Peanuts, where it's cooking on a budget. And I say that I do my own hair and makeup, and I look really good, really scary. <laughs> I look hor- horrible. And it opens up that way, and I could just look at myself forever. And then I get to play a hobo, and this southern woman, Patty Hogg, and this other character I play with my nose taped up. And then I also like the holiday episode, because I, I, I lose a tooth, and I get to have a blacked out mouth. It's Bullseye. Coming up, more on At Home with Amy Sedaris. She'll tell me about how the show came together. We'll talk crafts and what it's like to be on set with an enormous dead monkfish. I know. It was gigantic. It was like, and they were sitting out there for a while. The set did not smell pretty that day. Plus nicer stuff like her bunny rabbit. I have Tina. She's seven pounds. She has a deformed paw. She's aggressive. And she's just as charming as can be. And I've had her for three years. Then Paul Reiser. He created a sitcom centered around Johnny Carson. Paul was a guest on The Tonight Show dozens of times. And you know all those great things you hear about Johnny Carson as a comedian? He says they're all true. He knew when to help, how to help. Sometimes he'd help by jumping in. Sometimes he'd help by staying back. There were times that I looked at a thing, I, I saw him re, very subtly reposition his body so that his hand would be close to mine because he knew I needed to touch him for, a, for the joke. It's like, you know, whatever it was, he was there. Then, who needs who needs donuts? You need who needs donuts. All that's coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest this week is Amy Sedaris. She and I talked last year. She's one of the funniest people on earth. You probably saw her when she starred on the Comedy Central series Strangers with Candy, where she played a 46-year-old high school freshman. It was a show that, among other things, helped kick off the career of Stephen Colbert. She's been a regular on The Late Show with him and Letterman, too. She's had recurring roles on a bunch of other stuff, too. Lately, you've seen her as Mimi Canassis in Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt and heard her as Princess Caroline in BoJack Horseman. Sedaris is also a legitimate expert when it comes to stuff you might have learned in home ec, decorating pine cones, cooking casseroles, that kind of thing. She's a big at-home entertainer. So for the longest time, she had this idea, make a show starring her where she bakes and barbecues and makes little sailboats out of baked potatoes. Except, you know, it's Amy Sedaris, so the potatoes are covered in glue, the barbecue is on the 11th hole at a golf course, and the thing she's baking is a giant heap of raw ground beef. Last year, the show became a reality, finally. It's called At Home with Amy Sedaris. It's on True TV, and it's just as funny as it sounds. Amy plays a kind of amped-up version of herself. She's visited by people like Paul Giamatti, Stephen Colbert. It's really great. It got picked up for a second season. It's set to start shooting soon. It's also up for an Emmy in the Outstanding Variety Sketch Series category this year. Here's a little bit from the show's second episode. She's talking about entertaining for one. Anybody who knows me knows I never wear fitted jeans, I was a Girl Scout for way too long, and I'm involved heavily in the House Rabbit Society. But they also know I love to entertain. And what does entertaining mean? I believe it's the giving of myself to you, from me, for us. And when it comes to hospitality, I've settled on a certain way of doing things. It might not be the most proper way, or the most traditional, or even the most legal, but it works for me. And now, it can work for you. Now, if there's one thing I've learned, you can't entertain without guests. And when it comes to guests, I'm my favorite. 
I like the sound of my voice, I dress appropriately, and I always show up with something in my hand. That's why tonight I'm cooking for one. And I'm not alone at being alone, because so many of you people out there dine solo. Or, as the French say, El Fresco. <laughs> Amy Sedaris, welcome back to the show. Thank you for doing this. Oh, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I was laughing not only because the lines were uh, funny, but also because I was remembering that uh, I, I believe in that scene you are manhandling a meatloaf that is com- entirely uncooked. Yes. Just plunging your fingers into the ground meat. <laughs> we have to do that to make meatloaf. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Although for so- for some reason on the program it goes into the oven uncooked and comes out of the oven uncooked. Yeah, we didn't have a working oven on set. <laughs> um, why did you do this show now? I feel like you probably could have pitched this show... 10 years ago as well as you could have now. So what was different? I did pitch. The, I mean, I've been trying to actively get this show up since early 2000, and I always backed away from it. I'd get really close to it, and then I'd go I, – I just kept putting it off and putting it off. But, you know, you know, with a show like this, it's been stewing really since I've been 10 or 11 – and then I did the cookbooks. You know, it's just, you know, like having that project that you can always think about in your head. And I think it's like making a really good soup or a really good stew, and it just takes a long time if you really want it to be good. And I just came. I think my sister passed away, and I I just, I don't, I don't know. That's pretty much the timing of it. And I just decided, you know, it was time for me to do it. And I actively just put one foot in front of the other and just said, I'm going to do it now. Now's the time to do it. I've already done the books. They speak for itself. Um, and I just thought, let's just just do it right now. Why do you think you backed away before? Because then I would, you know, it's I just wasn't done thinking about it. I know it sounds like a pothead mentality right there, but you know, but it wasn't. I just wanted to keep thinking about it and thinking about it. And I, you know, so so many of my friends heard me talk about it since two thousand and one. I could see their eyes glaze over. Like, really, you're still talking about this show? When are you going to do it, Amy? So it was kind of embarrassing, too, that I always talked about it but never did anything about it. But now I'm going to miss it in my head. Now I'm going to have to come up with something new. Do you like to watch that kind of show? I mean, do you like to watch a a Martha Stewart or a – I don't know. For some reason, the example that comes into my head is the frugal gourmet. Yeah, love. Yeah, he's a big inspiration, and I like shows like that. I grew up with those shows. Everything that you know, I, I've been saying from Red Skeleton to Lawrence Welk and to you know Two Fat Ladies and Frugal Gourmet and and um, uh, Galloping Gourmet and Julia Childs and I, I mean those were all big inspirations. PTL with Tammy Faye Baker. She had a cooking segment on her show, and um, we had two local hospitality shows growing up. At Home with Peggy Mann and the Betty Elliott Show, and that's where the seed was planted when I was a young when I was. 10 or 11 and my mom would watch it and I would be like oh I'm going to do that show when I grow up what are the things that you wanted to uh, uh, to put on set to make it make your show uh, the visual feast that you were looking for well, I wanted a lot of artists. I went to a lot of artists, and they contributed artwork. And a lot of my family members did a lot of the artwork you see hanging up. And uh, the green vase who makes paper flowers, and my sister Gretchen who made paper flowers. And um, Jean Royer was this um, uh, a guy who made furniture. I don't know what year it was, but um, I have a book of his furniture. And uh, Jason Singleton who did the sets and made replicas of some of his furniture. And John Darian contributed furniture. So it's like everybody I love, you know, just like helped me bring that set to what it was. Adam Selman, a good friend of mine, made all the curtains and um, he helped me with the color schemes. So I was always, you know, every detail, there wasn't anything on set that, you know, wasn't like considered. It like had to have a special home. And that's how my apartment is. It's loosely based on my apartment. It seems like in your apartment, you take a lot of pride in the idea that every single thing that's in there is a story, is something that has actual meaning to you. Yes. Like Maud Lewis is this um, p- 
painter from the uh, she's from Canada, and I get this. The only magazine I get in the mail is called World of Interiors, and I she uh, that's where I read about Maude Lewis. And so we do a little. Um, she had flowers all over her house and tulips on her windows, and her hands looked like ginger. You know, she had her hands were like um, messed up, uh, deformed, and um, so we did that in the craft room. And I just love I love the craft room so much on the set, and I just look at that wall and I think of Maude Lewis, and um, I just. You know, I love there's a little bit of everything I love on that set. So I could just look around and just think about stuff. (laughs) Do you have in and out rules? I mean, uh, I know that I'm at the flea market every weekend. And I sort of had to start a vintage store so that I could buy things. Uh Because otherwise I would just be putting things on top of other things and you become a, a, a sad hoarder really fast. I know. So, like, you have to have a way... There has to be an indoor and an outdoor, you know what I mean? Um yeah. I, I well I kind I still go to the flea market and look for things, but I don't go as much as I used to just because I don't want anything else. But if I buy like a pair of shoes and I say I have to get rid of a pair of shoes, like I do keep that happening or you know I have I still have that 25 cent sale in my apartment where I have people over and I get you know sell stuff I'm getting rid of for a quarter because that's what it costs to do my laundry I need I collect you know I have to have a quarter um so I sell stuff for 25 cents I remember I feel like the last time you were on the show maybe you still you had like a permanent uh permanent sale installation in your home like it was like a table or something yeah I still do that okay well that's good it's a good way to get rid of things yeah does it work? Yes. I usually cater to the group of people I have over. So I know they're going to go for something. You know what I mean? Like, so I, I do cater it. I think one of the leitmotifs of your life and career is that as you have become more and more successful as an actress and comedian, you have maintained your passion for money-making side hustles. I know. Uh, when am I going to grow out of that? <laughs> I always say that when I'm, you know, up at four o'clock in the morning, you know, making five hundred lighters. I'm like, when am I going to stop doing this? What is the satisfaction of it for you? I like selling stuff. I like the transaction. I like having a table between me and an audience, and having people come and buy stuff from me. And that comes from junior achievements and Girl Scouts. It comes from me collecting Coke bottles and going door to door from Kool Aid stands. And it's just I like the idea of having allowance money, and I like the idea of it being under the table. And I made something, and someone bought it. You know, it's that simple. I just, I, and I just, it's just in my blood. Were there projects that you really? It wanted to get onto this show because you love them as projects rather than because they were great setups for comedy? Every craft on the show I wanted to get on. My favorite craft is the one, it's the marshmallow stars that I make, where you roll toothpicks and glitter and you insert them into a marshmallow and then you hang it on fishing wire. And I just can stare at that forever. Like, there isn't anything on the show... Um, I just loved everything I made on the show, and I was passionate about it. The only thing I make on the show that I've never made before is paella. But then I didn't really make it. You know, the uh, food stylist made it. But I, I didn't like the idea of make, saying I made something that I never even tried before. But, um, but it looked really pretty, so I was okay with it. Tell me a little bit about what's your favorite thing uh, that you make on the show to cook actually yourself at home? Um, well, I do make I make this birthday cake with Nick Kroll that um, I, I make. It's it's an angel food cake, and you uh, fill it with ice cream and you cover it with whipped cream, and that's a really good ice cream cake uh, to make, uh, especially for kids too, because they can help make it. And then I also make a baked Alaska. That was my favorite cake growing up. Uh, it's another ice cream cake, um, and spanakopita. Now you mentioned spanakopita. I feel like spanakopita is a true passion of yours. Yeah, I make that all the time. I really can make it with my eyes closed. Probably, it's I, we all. Everyone in my family makes spanakopita, and it's easy. And it's easy to impress people with phyllo because they're so intimidated by it. They don't know what to do with it. It's flaky, but um, we all have it down in my family, so it's easy. And it's not, you know, it's just a good crowd pleaser. Let's hear another clip from uh, At Home with Amy Sedaris. My guest is Amy Sedaris. Um, she does all kinds of uh, home activities on the show, everything you might do in home ec class. And um, in this scene, she's talking about seafood and fish, and there is just a 
dizzying and frankly slightly grotesque array of raw fish before her on uh, her kitchen counter. First up, the Arctic char. There you go. Now, this is a less attractive cousin to the salmon. Most people prefer salmon, but will settle for char, especially if it's the end of a night of heavy drinking and all the salmon has been ordered by the investment bankers. (laughs) The red snapper. Now, you know it's the red snapper because it's red, as you can see here. A workman-like fish known for its firm texture and abundance of mercury. Perfect if slowly poisoning a loved one is on the menu. Next up is the porgy. Now, this is perhaps the dumbest fish in the sea, easily fooled by the most simple of lures. So simple to catch, you can practically pull up to the pier in an unmarked van, slide open the door, and it'll jump right in. A real (laughs) dum-dum. I feel like the monkfish is a visual gag that just depends on the fact that a a monkfish is just really creepy looking. I know. It was gigantic. It was like, and they were sitting out there for a while. The set did not smell pretty that day. One of the things that I admire about your commitment to crafting, frankly, is that I always felt like, oh, I'm not any good at that kind of stuff. I could never do it. And I could never get enjoyment out of it because I'm no good at it. And very few of your crafts are technically impressive. (laughs) I know, but I'm doing the best job I can. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I I really I I I want to be clear how sincere I am in your in my admiration <laughs> for you doing this. It's like, but but I think like when you see somebody doing, when you see Martha Stewart doing something, you know, part of what you're admiring is just like, oh my gosh, I could never do something like that. What a remarkable, incredible achievement. And Amy, you're mostly like making potholders and enjoying it. Yes. You know, and they are nice potholders. It's not that they're not perfectly lovely potholders. They're just something that I could imagine a normal human being doing, <laughs> you know? Right. You can achieve this. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, like, you must really, I mean, I imagine that you really get that kind of satisfaction out of a project that you can just kind of do and it'll and it'll come out kind of fun. You know? Well, like going back to what you said earlier, like when I watch shows like Barefoot Contessa or Martha, usually they come out with some gadget or some big appliance. And I'm looking at it like, really, where in my apartment can I put that lemon juicer? Like where and you're plugging it in and it's taking up all your whole counter space. And I'm like, that makes me feel left out because I don't have any gadgets. I have a French bean Frencher. That's my gadget, you know, and I just it you do feel left out or you're like, oh, I can't do that. You know, wow, that's amazing. Or you have to go to these funky, you know, specialty shops to get something and I'm just like no I mean I grew up in a household where you're like okay go cut off the vacuum hose and we can use that for something or go scrape the shavings off dad's expensive speakers and we can use that to make a beard for something I mean you're just in your house and you're finding appliances and that's what I like or I like I'm drawn to naive crafts or like folk art because it's you know it's necessity and it's practical and you're doing with what you have you know you can make a braided rug using pantyhose or, or tights I mean, that's the family I grew up in, and it just makes it a lot more fun. And then you're like, wow, I never thought to use that pine cone for, you know, to put glitter on that pine cone or whatever it is. You know, it's it's just makes it more um, creative and you feel more like, you know, a mad scientist. I was I'm, I, I wouldn't say I was surprised because, you know, it is sort of part of the premise of the show. But I was really surprised a little bit. To see you looking so much like you on the show, and you do characters. There are sort of there are sort of sketch segments where you are playing someone other than Amy Sedaris. But yes. in the bulk of the show, you look like Amy Sedaris, and I realized how little comedy I had seen you do without at least one weird prosthetic. I know. It was hard for me. I didn't even have fake teeth made for myself. Well, I worried about that. I was like, oh, gosh, how am I going to play myself? But then once I started playing other characters, I was like, oh, I get it now. I'm going to be the boring one. I'm going to be the, you know, the one that all those characters would make fun of. So then it gave me that's the hook that I went with. Um, But I, I did worry about that. And it was a challenge for me to play myself. And to look like myself. But I, you know, I, I was like, well, I also get to play other characters, so it was okay. 
you know, because I have more fun playing characters, and I like playing ugly characters. My favorite episode, one of my favorite episodes is Entertaining for Peanuts, where it's cooking on a budget, and I say that I do my own hair and makeup, and I look really good, really scary. <laughs> I look hor- horrible, and it opens up that way, and I could just look at myself forever. And then I get to play a hobo, and this southern woman, Patty Hogg, and this other character I play with my nose taped up. So I just like that episode because I, I look so different in every scene. And then I also like the holiday episode because I, I, I lose a tooth and I get to have a blacked out mouth. <laughs> Do you prefer to look at yourself on camera? I mean, you know, when you're making your own show, you have to look at yourself on camera to some extent. Um, do you prefer to look at yourself with a blacked out, uh, a blacked out tooth and uh, and a crazy wig, than yes. to look at yourself in a pretty dress looking yes. nice? Absolutely. I can't. I mean, I can look at myself and be like, oh, you know, hair did great job. Makeup did a great job. The wardrobe's perfect. You know, oh, those shoes. You know, I just look at everything and look at the set and look around. But it, it's harder. And But when I'm in character for something or I do have a prosthetic or something, then it's just like, wow, because I can tell I'm having a lot more fun. We have even more with the great Amy Sedaris after the break. Still to come, can you name the two Girl Scout merit badges Amy didn't get? Until her 30s? Probably not. Keep listening. You'll find out. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but ZipRecruiter can make it simple, smart, and fast. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 job boards with one click. Then it scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash bullseye. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, it's Guy Raz here. And on the latest TED Radio Hour, how to talk about death candidly. Being able to accept that someday I will decompose, there is something comforting to me about that. You can find the TED Radio Hour wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, Max Fun listeners. Have you been listening to Max Fun for a while and you've just been wondering, where's the new Flat Earth podcast I keep hearing about? Well, here it is. We give you all the facts on NASA's lies and how we know that the Earth is actually flat. Just, Just kidding. kidding. <laughs> this is Ono, Ross, and Carrie, and we join fringe religious groups. We undergo alternative medical treatments. And we hang out with people like 9-11 truthers, flat earthers. We find out why do people believe strange things. We join them, and we tell you all about it. We have a lot of fun. We make a lot of friends. Yeah, we do. We joined the Mormons. We joined the Scientologists. We got acupunctured. We got fire cupped. We got ear candled. We've done it all, and we're going to keep doing it all. Why don't you check out Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org? It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Amy Sedaris. We talked last year. She's an actress and comic. You've seen her on Strangers with Candy, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, and more. She created and stars in the Emmy-nominated show At Home with Amy Sedaris. It's on True TV. I, I want to play this clip of you on uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, which is one of my favorite shows. And you're a, you're a regular... Uh, you make regular guest appearances on the show. Yes. Your character's name is Mimi Canassis. She's best friends with Jane Krakowski's character, Jacqueline. And Jane Krakowski actually makes an appearance on your show. She sure uh, does. As well. And um, in this clip, you are you have gone to a party with Jacqueline as a sort of wing woman. And you've got on a white wig because you are pretending to be Sia, the pop star with no face. Right. Um, and it, it doesn't work out how you imagined. I can't hear anything, so I'm going to assume that was my cue. Also, iTunes suspended my account, so I'm going to have to wing it. <laughs> Chandelier! Fancy roof flap! Chandelier! 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 <laughs> wow. <laughs> it must be fun to go on Kimmy Schmidt, which is... Uh, I don't want to call it an unhinged show. It's pretty hinged, but it's it's very silly and very high energy to begin with. Mm-hmm. And your mandate is kind of to jump in there and, and really get things going. 
Yeah, I love I love it. I have I love my look. I look like a little fox because I have a little face <laughs> and this huge country club hairstyle and I get to wear designer clothing. Um and it's just you know, and I'm just so weak, you know, next to Jane, you know, just like just desperate for her attention. So you already have an internal game to play, which is always makes it fun. Um and everyone's just really nice and funny on that show. It's it's all uh, yeah. You walk in, you get laughs, and you leave. It's perfect. Do you have any bunnies in your life right now? I have Tina. She's seven pounds. She's a deformed paw. She's aggressive, and she's just as charming as can be. And she, I've had her for three years. What kind of aggressive is she? She growls and grunts a little bit. She's knocked me down in the hallway. Uh, <laughs> How did you end up with bunnies, particularly? Because you've been a bunny advocate for quite a long time. I have. I was in the '90s, and I saw a little, um, a little uh, bunny in a window, and I just impulsively bought it. And uh, her name, I named her Tattletail, and she was a little dwarf bunny and uh, Silver Martin. And I was doing everything wrong. And then I met this woman who came to my house to do an interview, and she was in charge of the House Rabbit Society, Mary Cotter. And um, she said, oh, no, you know, you're doing everything wrong. And she trained me. And now um, I have a badge, and I can go into people's homes, and I can educate them on rabbit care. And any excuse to go into anyone's home, I mean, I'm right there. I love to go into other people's apartments. And I've rescued a couple bunnies, and I I go to the conference every every fall in New Rochelle. And... um, I don't know. I'm just really into it. And then I got, and then I had that bunny for seven years, and then I got another bunny, and I had her for twelve years, and now I've had Tina for three. I am. I'm imagining you right now, in a what amounts to a kind of police procedural, <laughs> like a Law and Order spinoff, where it's you banging on apartment doors in New York, <laughs> That's and funny. someone's eye going up to the peephole, and you flashing your bunny badge. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yeah, I've seen some crazy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what kind of crazy bunny stuff have you seen? Well, I saw what I mean, I I don't know what I can say on NPR. Just people's apartments. Forget the rabbits. I'm more interested in the I'm more interested in the houses and the people. Did you have that sense of identity that some people develop in high school like, "Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a theater kid or I'm I'm a band person or I'm a football player or I'm a geek in the AV club?" <laughs> I loved the IV club. They were always there hooking up stuff. It was the best when they would come into the classroom to hook up the screen or something. <laughs> like, oh, weirdos. Um, I don't know what I, you know, I I was, I don't know. I was in Girl Scouts up to my senior year of high school. <laughs> Maybe that makes me a geek. I don't know. Did you learn to do any uh, cool Girl Scout stuff? Like, do they, like, teach you knots or anything? I don't remember knots, but a lot of the crafts I do on the show I learned in Girl Scouts, you know, and we would go camping. And, you know, you had to earn a badge, and I liked earning badges, and I liked – I was always sold the most cookies, always. Um, and and uh, I, I just – I don't know. I, there's something I just liked about Girl Scouts, you know, getting together with a bunch of girls and doing crafts and, you know, singing songs. And I loved uniforms. I still love uniforms. Um and I still have my sashes and everything. And when I moved to New York, I went to the Girl Scout Council on 23rd, and I introduced myself, and I said, there are two badges I didn't get, and is it too late for me to earn them? And they said no, and they mailed them to me in the, in the, in the mail. What were the two that you hadn't gotten? Sign of the Star and Sign of the Era, I think that's what it was. What were they for? Yeah, like, I don't remember by heart, but one might say, you know, you have to get up in front of an audience and talk about something you love a lot. You know what I mean? Like little things like easy stuff. I'm like, look at I'm I'm 35. I've done this. I've done that. I did that. You know what I mean? I was just like, maybe I didn't do it back in the 70s, but I did it. I mean, look, you know, so I proved it to them and I got the badges. Well, Amy Sedaris, I'm hereby issuing you the uh, bullseye badge. Oh in, wow! In honor of in, in honor of being my favorite, so thank oh, you so, so much. Oh, that's so nice. I really enjoyed best. talking to you, and um, yeah, I really enjoyed talking to you. Nice catching up after all these years. Amy Sedaris, folks, from last year, she's the greatest. Her show, At Home with Amy Sedaris, is nominated for an Emmy this year in the Outstanding Variety Sketch Series category. Find out if she won on September seventeenth. If you haven't seen the show, you can watch the first season on a bunch of different platforms right now. Also, if you haven't seen the scene from Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt where she kicks off her shoes 
while she's running onto a carpet where no shoes are allowed. Uh, it's basically the greatest thing that's ever happened in television history, and you should definitely, at the very least, go on YouTube and watch that. Because, boy, is that great. Oh, man, it's so great. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up on the show, Paul Reiser. He's a legendary stand-up comic. Alongside Helen Hunt, he starred on the hit sitcom Mad About You, which he also created. He's been acting a lot lately. He's on Amazon's Red Oaks, on Stranger Things. He was in Whiplash. He's also the creator of a really interesting TV series called There's Johnny. When we talked last year, it had just premiered on Hulu. The show takes place in the early 70s, and it centers around a fictionalized version of Johnny Carson in The Tonight Show. It follows Andy, played by Ian Nelson, as he pines for and eventually gets a job on the show. In this clip from the pilot, Andy decides to write a letter to Johnny Carson asking for an autographed photo for his parents, and while he's at it, for a job. Andy gets the autographed photo and a letter he thinks is an invitation to come work on the show. So, just like anybody else would, he packs his bags, hops on the bus, and goes from Nebraska to L.A. And out. Tonight Show, please. You want to see the Tonight Show? Yes, sir. I have this letter here. You know what time it is? Sure. It's, it's 5 to 11. <laughs> right. Right. It's 11 o'clock at night. Yes. Yes! Oh, well, I know the show doesn't start till 11.30, but I figured I would get here a little bit early. <laughs> Are you yanking my chain? Am I what? The show starts at 11.30 on television. Right. They don't make it at 11.30. They make it at 5.30. So there's nobody here but me and you and maybe a raccoon. Paul Reiser, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Thank you. You appeared on the Tonight Show in the in a polyester suit. At least it looked like your first time around. Right now you're hurting me. You're hurting me with the fashion. <laughs> uh, was it a polyester? It, there might have been some polyester involved. Uh, yes, I was. Once in a while, somebody will post that, or I'll come across that clip, and and I cringe because it's. I look like I'm seven years old, and my style is so. Not only is it so long ago that my style has changed, but on that night. It's the biggest thing in the world for a young comic to get on The Tonight Show. And I think I was so deliberately slowing myself down to not race that I'm almost like running, you know, like I'm stuck in maple syrup. It was so slow. I went, man, I was either uh, in some alternate universe or I was wildly overcompensating. But, uh, yeah, uh, I like to think we're funnier now. Let's take a listen. Oh, no, really? Why? I was visiting my parents recently. Do you know my folks? No. All right. My my father. This is absolutely true. My father is is he has a new hobby now. He's got a winter hobby that he enjoys. It's called walking around the house and shutting off the heat for no reason. Uh, the man shuts off. He it's freezing, but see, he really believes that if he cuts down his oil bills, then starting tomorrow, America's going to stop importing from the Middle East. You know, it's a great sentiment. It's a nice responsibility. I just. I don't know if one person is going to turn around the economy, you know. I don't think the prince of Saudi Arabia is up in his office going, well, I don't believe this. It's that same guy in New Jersey again. (laughs) This is unbelievable. Wow. I feel like for an entire generation, or actually multiple generations of comics, Johnny Carson was like withholding comedy dad. Like there's a, he has this quality, a very rare quality for a broadcaster of being both uh, being both withholding and warm at the same time. I never found him withholding. It, it, it's funny. I I did it a lot. I, I I think it was something like twenty five times from like eighty. Uh, well, the first time I did that was eighty two, and then I didn't do it for a while till eighty six to ninety, and then somewhere in there. He just took a shine to me, and I was on seemingly pretty often, like every three months or so, which is a lot. And uh, the first time I did stand-up, but the next, the second, and then from then on, I only uh, sat on the couch and did material. So it was a different kind of vibe. You didn't have to quite perform it. And the great advantage to that is you're playing tennis with Johnny. So you hit a stumbling block. You know, he asks a question. He would, he would, he would help you along. And part of what made him so singularly uh, great at that and really set the gold standard. He knew when to help 
how to help. Sometimes he'd help by jumping in. Sometimes he'd help by staying back. There were times that I looked at a thing. I I saw him re, very subtly reposition his body so that his hand would be close to mine because he knew I needed to touch him for a, for the joke. It's like, you know whatever it was, he was there. I feel like the difference that I hear in the way that people talk about going on late night um, in the twenty five years since Johnny Carson retired um, and before that. Is that you know, with a, with the possible exception of Letterman to some extent, um, I would say that you know when I when I talk to a comic, oh, the first time I went on the Tonight Show uh, with Leno or whatever, I did or Fallon, I, I went on, I did well, it was great. When you hear people talk about going on uh, the Tonight Show with Carson, certainly the stakes are higher because there's less on television, and everyone watched the show, and it was the only outlet for comedy in the world, basically. Yeah, uh, that, yeah. that kind of comedy in the Absolutely. world. But but the difference is, those people always seem to talk about Johnny Carson in terms of their goal was whether Johnny Carson liked it. Like, yes, <laughs> that is the yes. rest of the fact that uh, tens of millions of people are watching at home or there's an audience in the studio like people seem to care. Did Johnny? Like yeah, it? and it's I'll tell you one of the uh, great joys of doing this uh, show that we just did for Hulu. Uh, uh, there's Johnny is uh, good work. It was a it was a, always, well, always say the title, always say the title. But there is such a deep well of affection for Johnny Carson. Um, and a lot of it, I think, is because it's been a while, and so we miss him. It's all the more so. And But women, men, older guys, you know, and there was, there was just, there was a fondness, and he was comforting. Speaking of the absence of irony, I have a clip of... Is it ironic? You on oh, The Tonight Show. You're killing me now. It's the late 80s. Um, and I don't like any. This is like pulling up high school pictures. Like, oh man, look at that shirt. Well, you're going to be excited to hear that you're talking about airplane travel. Um, oh, I think this is the bit I was referencing. Let me hear it. Uh, it's it's you being stuck on a plane next to a, a too talkative passenger. I get stymied by simple questions. A guy says to me, just he says, "Is it going to rain today?" And I think like like I should know that, and I yeah. feel bad that I don't know that. I said, "Well, I." I, I couldn't tell you. Why don't you ask somebody else? Like, wouldn't he be scared if I did know? Wouldn't that be frightening? Yeah. You're sitting next to the guy who knows when it rains. <laughs> it's like, yeah, three thirty to quarter to four. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, that car trip you're taking next week, don't do it. You know, <laughs> I just feel crazy about you. You know, and then uh, there, I mean, you see, there are people who can do it. You can. Anybody can sit here. Uh, no, I'm not particularly good when on on a plane with strangers. Yeah? No, well, you it, get trapped in that nothing conversation. Exactly. But guys, it's a great day to fly. But these are the same kind of people who I think just because you're sitting next to each other, you know, you should be friends. This is the same people who on the road will honk their horn because they have the same car, you know? That's like, <laughs> like that's a base of a very solid friendship. <laughs> you're driving around, hey, Chevy, Chevy! <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like that, what is that, 30 years ago almost, um, you are already building chunks of your act around not wanting to make friends with people. Well, here's the thing that <laughs> that um, that chills me a little bit. When I look at old clips, I go, I'm doing the same, the same things irritate me. And, and I was like, <laughs> oh, I'm, I was doing a bit about technology. I, and I, I found a bit uh, of the first time I got a computer. I thought, well, I'm still doing computer bits, but it's different. But I haven't really become any more comfortable. And yes, people, I don't like people talking to me. Yes, yeah, so I'm... Uh, I'm nothing if not consistent. I, I uh, the, things that bother me. I, it it, it uh, amuses me to see that I'm yes that early on. I already didn't enjoy people. I like that you. You know, I feel like <laughs> I it, like you. Don't get me wrong. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Paul. Um, and I like you and your new show. There's Johnny on, on Hulu? Hulu. Yeah. Uh, I. I mean, I feel like uh, <laughs> Mad About You was, in a way, about the dance of irritation in the context of loving romance. Yeah. Uh, the Paul Reiser show was about the dance of irritation in the kind of ad hoc friendships that <laughs> yes. parenthood drives you into. Yes. God you bless know? you for having seen that show, because uh, 14 people did. Well, I'll, um, wa I'll watch anything with uh, my favorite comic actor in it. 
Andy Daly. Yeah. Oh, we. Oh. But uh, yeah, the, you know, to me, the struggle and Mad About You was certainly about the struggle and yes, find the irritation. You know, somebody years ago said, you know, what, you know, all the uh, take my wife, please jokes and all that whole generation. Y- nobody has a joke that starts. My wife is such a good cook. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to be funny. Uh, so comedy, by definition, is going to be about the irritants and the friction. But Mad About You is very clearly from the outset aiming higher. It's like this is a couple who really wants to get this right. And that was that's sort of the prerequisite for a relationship. And that's, you know, what you can never lose sight of because it will get bumpy and it will get in. You are two different people and you try and become as one, but you're never quite as one. You're a team. So and I think that's ultimately what people responded to. And I still hear today that the warmth that people who, who enjoyed Mad About You is, A, they related to it and they saw themselves in it. And we would try to be very realistic. But at the core, you're watching a couple who is clearly well-intended. They're trying to not let the normal things that come up kill their romance. And uh, and it takes elbow grease. It takes vigilance and and, uh, you know, and they never really stopped. So that was... A rich thing, and I think you know. Even in my stand-up, the things that irritate me are only because they're on on the way to what would have been a higher goal. I really would like to be a better person, but man, that guy is irritating me. I think the reason and I don't like the way I handled it. <laughs> I think the reason Mad About You, in particular, is a romance and not a, not a family comedy, a traditional family sitcom, um, is that. Ultimately, every episode is about them wanting to be in this relationship and wanting to have love rather than, you know, the kind of well-worn grooves of a traditional family sitcom, which are about everyone is in this position. Like it's it's a which is great. It can be really hilarious. But, you know, often there those those shows are about kind of reenacting a ritual conflict. Yeah, um, we worked about hard. character types. Yes, and we worked uh, we worked diligently to avoid the well worn grooves. You know, and sometimes we'd write it and go, yeah, "That's a good laugh," but yeah, I don't like what it says about him. I don't like what it says about her. And and you know, I th- I think the, there are a bunch of reasons that the show succeeded. One, you know, and let's and I bury the lead there. You know, the spectacular talents of Helen Hunt, who was great actress and really funny really deeply f- smart and funny and the other one of the other things that we uh, strived strove striven st- uh, stribbed stribbed to do was we didn't make him always the nut and her always the oh rob you know or, or vice versa and it was alternating and sometimes in the same episode in the same scene it's like okay here's his little bag of craziness and here's her little buttons and you try and alternate more with paul riser after a quick break when we return what do you do when you have a show like mad about you behind you and you're kind of set for life financially if you're paul riser you go to the comedy store and do 15 minutes it's bullseye from maximumfun.org and npr Support for this podcast and the following message come from Dreams. Remember The X-Files, the show with a never-ending supply of paranormal problems and shoulder pads? Now you can watch it for free. Dreams is broadcasting the original series on Thursdays, starting from the beginning. Dreams is a new TV channel for your phone. It's free with no login. Download the free Dreams app for the iPhone or Android and tune in on Thursdays. Planet Money tip number 17. A great analogy doesn't have to make sense. Busier in a one-legged bobcat covering up his own crap on a frozen pond. Did you just make that up? <laughs> well, yeah. Just... Planet Money, a poetic podcast about the economy. Yeah, Mark. Hey, buddy. Oh, hey, what's up, ma'am? Um, so I'm at this mafia restaurant. What? I'm going to go in and ask these guys what they think the best pasta shape is. Mark, they're probably eating it. I have a hunch that it's probably ravioli, but I mean, you know what? That's a good idea. Whatever they're eating, I'll just take a look in their bowls Why don't and you see what they have. Maybe, There's supposed to be a big meeting there today. Can you see it from the street? That sounds really dangerous. So I'm just going to go inside and ask. Don't don't bother them. They're probably eating, you know. Well, look, I'm not threatened by them. How about we tell them what the best pasta is on our podcast? We got this with Mark and Hal. Oh, that's a great idea. Thank God. Tuesdays at 9? On MaximumFun.org. 
You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Paul Reiser. He's, of course, a legend in the comedy world. Star on Mad About You, actor on Stranger Things, Red Oak, so much more. When we talked last year, he'd just created the comedy series There's Johnny, which you can stream now on Hulu. Let's hear a scene from Mad About You, the sitcom that my guest Paul Reiser co-created. Um, this is from the first season of the show. Jamie, which is Helen Hunt's character, is asking uh, Paul, who's Paul Reiser's character, if she's seen her missing sock. Have you seen my other sock? What's it look like? Remarkably like this one. It's gone. It's missing. Well, it's a sock. Where could it go? To the kitchen. Very often they get hungry. Look everywhere else. Check the cupboards. For your sock? Yes, I'm looking for a sock. You figured out the game. Now help me play. Here's a thought. Put on another pair of socks. These are my lucky socks. Well, it looks like your luck has changed, babe. I think that, um, you know, the 90s were such uh, an interesting transitional period for the sitcom as a form where you went from, um, you know, kind of the... The apotheosis of how many great jokes can we put in a show sitcoms like Cheers, um, which I think is probably the the last truly great how many great jokes can we put in a show sitcom um, with a thousand, you know, uh, a, a cast of a thousand brilliant uh, character actors doing a hilarious thing and you love them all and, you know, it's your family and they everyone caps everyone else's joke. Um and the other the other shows that I think of that I loved, and I was when Mad About You came on TV, I was uh, a pre-adolescent, and when it was done, I was a teen. Oh, really? And you were watching it then? Yeah, sure. Really? I mean, you was just what? I didn't have cable. <laughs> I had no choice. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it. Um, <laughs> I did enjoy it, but like if I if I watch Seinfeld now, what Seinfeld did is they took a pretty straightforward sitcom formula and like operatized it, right? Yes. Like took the smallest possible stakes and expanded them into the largest possible stakes. Just took the dumbest thing in the world, a phrase, a you know, tiny idea and just exploded it into the most important thing in the world until it's the silliest <laughs> opera you could imagine. And I, you know, in the 90s, I really loved News radio, which as I watch it now, is a really traditional yeah. sitcom in a lot of ways that is just a, a little sillier and with better jokes than most, you know? And the thing that's interesting to me about Mad About You is I feel like the innovation of the form is you, you watch the show now 25 years later and it feels like a sitcom in a lot of ways. I mean, you you were saying like it feels a little sitcom-y, just jokey, you know? But there the emotional stakes are not abstract with your two lead characters. Yeah. Like those two lead characters are having a relationship that feels real in a way that most sitcoms and that don't was, have. And that was the only uh, um, uh, uh, intention. You know, the kickoff was, you know, because I was approached at the time by like, go write a, you know, come up with a show for yourself. And I thought, well, I don't know if I want to do a sitcom. I thought, well, if I did, it would only want to. I would want to do it about the stuff that I was doing in my act, which was relationship stuff, and that I found that interesting. And and so, you know, sometimes you just stumble into something. You go, oh, yeah, this is feeling. I'm getting bigger laughs for a reason. This is coming from an organic place. So I'm going to do a bit. And I and this is probably true for everybody. If you do a bit about real people and relationships and and your wife or your kid or it's going to be funnier than the best you know, traffic joke or boy, LA is different than New York, which is the, 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 the trope of 40 years ago. But, um, yeah, we, we it was always about what's, um, it's always, what's, the trope. it's always the trope, yeah. but what, but it's interesting, you know, we, we, I mean, I'm not, I actually love jokes, like really, t you know, story jokes. And I love hearing them and I love telling them, I, but I never write that way. And, um, and we would, and if something found, uh, sounded too jokey, we would, either lose it or find another way to, to leaven it that it didn't sound, you know, in bad television, some of the people would just throw funny lines and the other person would, they, it would land on them and the audience would laugh and they would just have to sit there with, and then, and they'd wait and then they'd throw another one back. But in real life, if somebody said that to you, you'd go, Hey pal, you know, like it hurts. So like, well, let's write that. Like, what are you doing? Why would you say that? And, 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 
But having said that, I've, I've watched some old man about you's and, and I think, oh my goodness, I forgot how funny they were. They were I mean, it's not, it, it was never, <laughs> we wanted to always be funny, but it was at the core, it was about something that was important. But, um, you know, I think certainly, well, even in the beginning of Mad About You, but certainly towards the end, some of our biggest laughs that uh, I was most proud of were silent. They were on a look because, you know, think of all in the family, you know, Edith would say something and Archie would look at her and you know because you've watched 100 episodes, oh, you know what he's thinking and you know what he's going to say. And in our show, in Mad About You, it was, it was that, but it was also we were rooting. It's like, oh, if the husband says that, you know the wife is getting ready to say the next thing. And uh, those silences, we had, we had a great run where we, were, we would go to therapy. We'd go to couples therapy. And Mo Gaffney, who was terrifically funny, was our therapist. And... It was this great triangle of comedy where she would say something and one of us would, well, yeah, and respond to it. And that would, by definition, be burying the other one. Yeah, well, sometimes Paul does this. And you just, I would look at her like, whoa, whoa. And, like, and, now, and, then, and then the look would get the laugh. Or I would say something and Helen would just go, really? You're, you're gonna, that's what you're going to say? It's like, it's not a joke, but it's funny because we're taking the ride with these people and we know what's going on in their lives. You know... To have an extraordinarily successful network sitcom, which you did, you were both the star of it and the co-creator. Um, you make a nearly infinite amount of money, and so you are then freed of the thing that drives a lot of us in our work, which is a continuing terror that of penury, you know, that yeah, we're, yeah, 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 we're yeah. going to be broke or something, right? Yeah. And so did you then come to a part in your life where you had to decide, like, wait, now I have to decide what I want to do? Uh, well, it's funny. That was the gist of, of my, my short-lived show, uh, uh, <laughs> the Paul Reiser show. So uh, I had a really big hit show and I made, you know, a very comfortable amount of money that I don't have to worry about that. And and the log line that I said accidentally, which became the pitch, was when you've when you realize you've gotten everything you've ever wanted in life and you're not dead yet. <laughs> like nah oh, I didn't time this well. Because you wanna you wanna get there right at the end, ta da. I'm like, wow, I'm still relatively young and healthy. What what's what's act two? And so that was so I became my name on the show was me and I was writing what was happening for me at the time, which was all my male friends were not of my choosing. So when that didn't work, I mean, they aired two episodes. They aired two. It. We made seven. Yeah. So when that wasn't the, I'm sure that wasn't what you had hoped for the show. No, I said two and out. Okay. I, said, <laughs> I, said, I said, the last five I'm going to shoot, but for God's sake, don't air them. When that, Maybe that was my mistake. When that didn't work, did you have to like? Did you have to take another reconsideration? Because it see, it feels like in the that was what six or seven years ago. Yeah, some maybe. And it seems like in the last three or so years, you've worked a, three or four years. You've worked a lot as an actor. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, at the time, what I did is interesting, and I can't quite get up high enough to see. Uh, the, the, the forces at play here. But at the time, I said, you know what? I, I, I don't want to have another pitch meeting. I don't want to sell anything. It's just too irritating. And, and I just said, I'm going to go back into the clubs and do stand-up. Because I had always meant to do that. Well, when Mad About You started, I just got busy and I didn't do stand-up. And, and I didn't do it for all the time of Mad About You. So now it's seven years. Then I was home for a while. So now it's 10, 12, 15 years. I went, oh my goodness, I haven't really been out there as a stand-up. It was always my goal, but I, I just kept waiting for a right time. I went, well, just do it. And so, in fact, I did it just as like going for a walk. It's like, you know, I got to clear my head. I want to do this. And it wasn't a career thing. But the irony was, I spent about a year just getting my muscle back because it had really gone lax. And I started feeling confident. Like, oh, this is good. And I started to book some dates and I go out on the road. And literally when I did that, these other uh, lovely jobs, uh, acting jobs, came in sort of cosmically uh, synchronicity-wise. They were uh, inexplicable because it wasn't like we saw him on stage and he'd be funny. There was no connection. I was off the map. But something happened the minute I sort of shook off the dust and started doing what I wanted to do, 
<laughs> things sort of like the universe opened up in this strange way. And and yes, I had this lucky, uh, fortunate, very fortunate um, position where I didn't have to do anything. And I, you know, so like I only went where there was something appealing. Well, Paul, I uh, we've run out the clock. I appreciate you taking. I got this more time stories. I got more. Hey, hey, hey! Where are they grabbing me? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's embarrassing how readily I can talk about myself. And at home, I can't do this. That's why I have to come here and talk to you. We're you should a, become a stand-up comedian. Yeah. We're in a little booth that people can't see. We're in a booth that's six feet by six feet. It's like Guantanamo, but not quite as nice. Well, yeah. I mean, and at this point, it's getting pretty cool hand Luke in here. Like, the temperature is it's, it's the a little temperature toasty, is rising. And also, I'm eating 24 hard-boiled eggs. <laughs> <laughs> in case you're wondering what that order was. Um, yeah, man. Pleasure. Thank you for, for, you know, for knowing. And sometimes you meet people and they go, I've never seen that show. What is it about? I go, all right. But thank you for your, uh, your literacy in the world of moi. Paul Reiser from last year. There's Johnny is available to stream now on Hulu. What else is going on with Paul Reiser these days? He is set to star alongside a bunch of other big names in the upcoming series The Romanoffs, which premieres next month on Amazon. It's the new show from the creator of Mad Men. He's still doing stand-up, too. He's got dates coming up. We'll have a link to that info on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Every week on Bullseye, we like to leave you with a little culture recommendation from me. Call it the outshot. So I have three kids. The oldest one is six. The youngest one just started scooting across the floor. And so I have a house that is full of picture books. Some of them may be structural at this point. And I have to be frank with you. I am not that nuts about most picture books. I mean, the truth is that kids don't care. Kids will swallow just about anything <laughs> entertainment-wise. They haven't seen anything, so they don't know any of the moves. Give them a little action, maybe something cute, you're good to go. They'll like it. No cliché is too clichéd. But if you're a parent, when you bring home a book, it means you are going to read it a thousand times, no matter what, even if it's their least favorite. So there's really got to be something to it. William Steig and Maurice Sendak deliver pretty consistently. But beyond that, the pickings get real thin real quick if you're looking for something toothsome. In my house, one book is a real favorite. It's the one that we buy for other kids' birthdays. We grab it anytime we can when it's time to read out loud. It's a real gem. It's called Who Needs Donuts, written and illustrated by Mark Allen Stamati. It's about a kid in a cowboy suit who's bored with his family, so he hitches up his wagon and heads for the city because he wants donuts. The pictures in the book are these strange, dense black and white cartoons. Every page is overflowing with oddness. On the streets of this city, which seems like it's probably New York, are, are pigeons with horse heads and wingtip shoes. Every inch of every building wall is covered in bricks and oddly canted windows and people who are up to something. There are dogs standing on people's heads, animals smoking pipes, wearing top hats. It's, it's just spectacular. And then in the middle of it all, there is this kid in a cowboy hat riding a tricycle with a horse's head down Main Street. It's that feeling of freedom that you long for as a kid, the kind of wildness. But it's also the counter to that feeling, the, the longing for comfort, both of those at the same time. So the boy meets this lumpy, kind of maniacal man named Mr. Bickford, who loves collecting donuts just as much as he does. And they team up. And, and at first, it's just pure joy. I mean, they've got wagons of donuts, towers of donuts, a warehouse filled with a sea of donuts. And on their rounds one day, they cross paths with this old woman who says something that catches them short. Who needs donuts, she asks. Who needs donuts when you've got love? It's a passing moment, but it becomes a turning point. When Mr. Bickford finds love with a pretzel collector, whose name is Pretzel Annie, he gets out of the donut game. His donuts go to the boy. But the kid's starting to wonder, are donuts really what matters? 
One day, a rhinoceros goes wild in a coffee factory, and the coffee starts to fill up the below-ground apartment next door. It belongs to the old woman. She doesn't know how to swim. The boy swoops in with his donuts, dumps a huge pile in through a street-level window, and they soak up the coffee. The woman's life is saved. The boy is a hero, but he's realized he doesn't need donuts. He needs something else. So he packs up his gear and he goes home to his family in a tree-lined street not half as exciting as the donut madness in the city. But who needs donuts when you've got love? That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where a few MaxFun staffers are catching Pokemon fever. Yes, that's right. It's 2015 again here at Maximum Fun World Headquarters. Chewy, our colleague, found something called a Whalemur at the park today. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Please do not at me. Looks like a blue whale combined with a volleyball. Very impressive creature. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson, he had help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows for MaximumFun.org are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Jesus, I guess, had help from Whalmer. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was recorded by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our thanks to him for sharing all that music with us. Our theme song is by The Go Team, a great band out of England. You should check out their records. It's called Huddle Formation. Uh, Thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use it. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, there are hundreds on our website. Go to MaximumFun.org. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.